Tell me what these things have in common. Gnosticism, the Arian controversy, Reformation, fundamentalism, Martin Luther. What do those things have in common? They've all been part of a church conflict. Anybody here know anything about a church conflict? Our natural reaction is to run for the hills. I suppose there are some people who like conflicts. They're just weird. There are others that can traffic through it with great grace. Now, when churches experience conflict, it can either sharpen your vision or it can cause the church to tear apart. I remember first year I was pastor, and I said, because this was an issue with a lot of people, I said, this is not going to be a homeschool church. We're going to be a church that will minister to people no matter how they school their kids. We lost half the church in one Sunday because people wanted that. That was our marker. Now, nothing wrong with homeschool, but there is with a homeschool militia. There's a problem with that, okay? What I love about the Bible is that it depicts church conflicts honestly without running from them. It depicts them in living color. Embarrassing details are not avoided. And in the case of Acts 15, I'll tell you, it is a real Donnybrook. Now, it was definitely theological, but it had very practical implications as well on how the church would operate. So to understand the context, the first Christians were all Jews, right? Jesus was a Jew. His messiahship would be expressed within Judaism. Uh, God had one covenantal people, the Jews. Christianity was born out of Judaism. And the Jews demanded that all Gentile converts be circumcised, that they follow the the rituals of cleanliness, uh, you know, religious cleanliness, to express themselves as holy or a people of God set apart. When Jews converted to Christ, the question they asked themselves is, do all who come to Christ have to first go through Judaism? Because if Gentiles had to be circumcised to be a Jew, then don't they have to be circumcised when they come to Christ? You could see how they could think that. And then you take it a step further, how about fellowshipping with Gentiles? Shouldn't they be you know, ritually clean as well? and be circumcised? You could boil it all down to this. Is Christ enough to be a Christian? Is Christ enough to be a Christian? Do we need to do something else? Do we need to, you know, take a course? Go through these uh, 9, 10, 11 steps? Go through a class? You know, get really cleaned up to present ourselves to Jesus. And then we'll be accepted. Then the church will embrace us. Our story in Acts 15, it is immensely practical. I mean, when I first came to Christ in northern Ohio in the ninth grade, 
you know, our faith community, you know, you know what was important to really follow Christ? You had to keep your hair cut. Had to be short. Couldn't play cards. Couldn't go to movies. Couldn't listen to rock music. So here's a question for us Christians in Southwest Missouri. Do you in Southwest Missouri have to have the same view on Donald Trump or immigration to be accepted into a fellowship? To be considered a a good Christian? Dear God, I hope not. Does one have to speak in tongues to show that they have the Holy Spirit? Mm. Do you have to be baptized to be accepted by God? What kind of baptism is that, by the way? Did you do that in the right church? Do you have to be Republican to be accepted in the church? Now, I know nobody would say those things. Well, I guess somebody would say those things out loud, okay? But most of that, like the stark reality, when you have it confronted like that, it's, well, wait a minute. I really do shut people off who don't agree with me on those things. We do it. Maybe most importantly, are there a minimum number of likes I have to get on Facebook or Instagram to be accepted by others or to feel like I'm accepted? See, these questions impact the way we think of ourselves as a Christian and how we might think of ourselves before God. Immensely practical. Let's all stand as we take a look at Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there you have it. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all God's people said, amen to that. Father, we need your help. Yes, we need your help in understanding this, but we especially need your help in practicing it, to walk by grace. And Father, I think of how we stand on the shoulders of many men and women in the church in the historical church, and even in this own church, who have stood firm on the gospel, who have not wavered, and who have paid a price. And yet we're thankful for those men and women that have done so. 
And I pray from this point forward, we, as your people, could stand firm on the gospel. And that our unity would be marked by a simplicity of devotion to Christ. Not a a meaningless, kumbaya kind of unity that's subjective, that throws Jesus out into the hinterland in terms of any, any theological conviction, or it doesn't matter who he was or what your word says. Lord, that's not what we're asking. We're asking for a unity that has teeth in it that, that affirms the truth of your word and the gospel. Make it so with us. And then, Lord, for those who differ, may we walk by grace. For those who don't agree with us on secondary issues, May we show great charity, even though those issues may be important to us. But may we never fall into a legalism. I ask that your spirit would teach us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now we know from Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey that they had a lot of opposition from Jews who actually tried to do violence to them, tried to kill them. They were opposed to the gospel opposed to the preaching that Paul and Barnabas were doing. The opposition that they're facing here is a different bird. These are Jews that have affirmed the gospel, but they're adding to it. That's a much different thing. And in particular, they were saying you had to go through Judaism first. Circumcision was necessary for salvation, they said. Now, they were, they were not denying the possibility of Gentiles coming to Christ, being saved, being redeemed, whatever term you use, but insisted that they first must be circumcised. Now, maybe they heard of the success that Paul and Barnabas had on the first missionary journey, where many Gentiles came to faith as Paul and Barnabas presented the gospel fantastic stories that were being told as they boldly proclaimed the truth. That is awesome that they did that. And many people came to Christ. And perhaps these Jewish believers saw that, heard about that, and are thinking, you know what? We can't have the church going soft. Uh, We can't go liberal on this. We got to hold the line on the law and make sure that people subscribe to circumcision. So they came to Antioch to straighten everybody out. Now, it's not that the law is bad. The law gave practical regulations to make people distinct as God's chosen ones. However, this band of Jews within the church 
They turned it into something that it was not intended for. They turned it into a ladder to salvation. By seeing circumcision as necessary for salvation, the law became a tool for people to feel like they were loved by God. If I do this, God will feel this way about me. You know, those who came to Antioch to stir up this trouble wondered how this Christ alone doctrine could be from God if Gentiles are allowed to skirt the law. I mean, how does that happen? I mean, yes, you can embrace Christ, but you also need something else. That was the idea. And our passage says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So they tried to reason with them. Certainly, they gave scriptural support for their position, speaking of Paul and Barnabas to these people. Certainly, they told them of their experience with the Gentiles and how many had come to faith. And yet, this band of Judaistic rabble-rousers insisted that the gospel alone was not enough. But to add anything to Christ as being necessary for salvation, any kind of human work is to deny that what Christ did on the cross is indeed effectual. And such thinking, listen, it has immense implications for how we live our Christian life. If I'm saved by some human efforts, then I have to live the Christian life with some human fleshly effort. I mean, I need Christ, but I need something else. He needs me too to do this. Fill in the blank. Listen, it's the height of human arrogance to have yourself next to Christ and then claim he's not enough. That is the height of pride and arrogance. Now, I can imagine Paul might have given some different arguments like, hey, to mix law and grace is to pour new wine into an old, brittle wineskin. Why do you want to try to stitch the veil back up that God already tore in half? Why do you want to rebuild a wall? Build that wall. Why do you want to rebuild a wall between Jew and Gentile when Christ already broke the wall, tore it down? The whole Jewish tradition with the Gentiles communicated the message of stand back. I mean, even the architecture of the temple said this. There was an outer court for the Gentiles. Then there was an inner court for the women and then an inmost court for the men. And after that came the temple proper, which only the priest could enter. The whole message of the architecture was, hey, you Gentiles, stand back. Not really welcome here. And there were ranks of people to match the temple's message. There was a high priest and then lesser priests 
and then men, and then women, and then there were the dirty Gentiles who needed to stay away because they're just not that holy. Unless they wanted to convert to Judaism and be circumcised. This would explain why in Acts 21, Paul is dragged away by a group of Jews and threatened to be killed. What was his crime? He brought a Gentile into the temple. These Jewish believers were screaming, stand back. You ever been to a church and got that message? Stand back. You're not one of us. You don't do this. You smoke? Oh, stand back. You're a Democrat? Oh, stand back. I remember a homeless man coming to our church once, dressed like a homeless person. And he said, do you care if I come to your church? Well, well, of course not. Because I was kicked out of the last one because of the way I was dressed. Wow. Stand back. We don't take your kind. See, these Jewish believers, they were screaming, stand back, and Christ says, come, be with me. The book of Galatians, it's a, it's a companion to this issue. It is here, we have an expanded, it's almost like a position paper from Paul on the doctrine of Christ being enough. Listen to this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You cannot slaughter enough lambs and calves to pay the price. You cannot ritually wash your hands enough to be clean. You cannot recite enough prayers to maintain the communication. You cannot separate yourselves enough to be holy no matter what behavior you adopt. About 20 years ago, a group of us went to Bolivia. We visited a church that had an effigy of Jesus and Mary in a glass box to kiss. I'll never forget my oldest son and I looking at that. And it's like, dude, what do you think that's saying? Well, outside stood a canopy, and underneath that was a bunch of candles. Had to be hundreds of candles. You had, to, you had to light that for a connection with God, a candle. And then you could, you could kiss the box with Jesus and Mary inside. Now, I have sympathy, not condemnation, for people who think this way. Why? Because you can't confess enough sins, right? You can't kneel enough. You can't light enough candles, You can kiss Jesus and Mary a thousand times and all you'll get are sore lips. 
See, the sentence of death is upon each of us, and no work that we do will get rid of that sentence. The only question is, will it be our death to pay that sentence, or will it be the death of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sin? Every religion says, do, do, do. Christ says, done. The Jewish believers in Acts 15, they were saying, oh, there's a whole lot to do. There's so much more to do to be accepted by God. Uh, Good start with the gospel, but you need more. See, old thinking, bad thinking, it dies hard. So Paul and Barnabas and others from Antioch, they decide to go to Jerusalem and take this matter up with the church there. The Jerusalem church was kind of like, you know, the mothership. So they went there to talk about this. I think we can learn a lot about the machinations that are going on here. Paul and Barnabas travel all that way to talk about, and by the way, they take some witnesses with them, witnesses to the gospel working among the Gentiles, and they're asking for help. They're trying to get this thing worked out by having a tough conversation. There was no blown up sense of self-importance by Paul in saying, I declare that this is what's right, and everybody needs to understand that. You don't see that with Paul. Now, even though he boldly held to the gospel, he's wanting to make sure that these Christians understand this. There's no edict declared by just one person, and that's the way it is. This deserves to be discussed. This deserves to be worked out. Take note that any adversity, conflict like this between you and another party can be redeemed when our hearts are humble, when our ears are open, and we have a willingness to work things out. Frankly, I'm amazed at the number of Christians who pack up and go home when there's a conflict when all that's needed is a conversation to work this thing out. Paul and Barnabas traveled over 250 miles. They had to walk or go by animal. And they knew that there was going to be a difficult conversation to be had. But pride and fear keep people from doing that. May God strengthen our resolve, brothers and sisters, whether it's in the home or in the church or on the job. We treat each other with respect, respect enough to know that this person has a brain and an opinion too, so let's talk about it, right? May God strengthen our resolve and our character. More importantly, may we believe that God is not limited by our struggles, by our conflicts, but he can work in the midst of the conflicts. Amen? That's right. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
So it would, take, it would have taken Paul and Barnabas at least a month to travel this distance. Again, they were attempting to work out this conflict with the church about what these Jewish believers were bringing up. So we can look at the map here. They traveled through Phoenicia. So you can see there on the right. And by the way, that is a real picture of Paul and Barnabas. It's amazing, okay? It's an old Polaroid they found in some cave. It's amazing. They look like twins. I don't know how that happened, but all right. So they take this opportunity to share what God was doing in the other churches. And it says that the believers were so encouraged and, and it brought great joy to them to hear what God was doing. Think about this for a second. Great conflict. They take a trip, tell about what God is doing. They go and share this with the people in Jerusalem. There was some time between when the, the problem was first presented to them there was time in between to when they actually had the conversation to try to get this resolved. Maybe if more of us put some space between those two things and learned how to thank God like Paul and Barnabas did, learned how to, to praise God, it might change our perspective and, and bring the boiling point down. You know, we're, we're kind of a, on a scale of one to 10, about a nine emotionally, you know, in the midst of a conflict. But if you just sit and you're praising God and thanking him for what he's doing, maybe at least get it down to a five, all right? That's going to help a lot when we're trying to deal with the conflicts. Giving God a chance. And notice what the emphasis is. All that God had done. That's all that they were talking about. I mean, look at what God did in saving Paul on the Damascus Road. Supernatural work to apprehend the gospel. Look at how God called Paul to be a proclaimer of the gospel. Look at how God used Paul when he gave the gospel and he had all these Gentiles coming to Christ. All of that affirms the supernatural work of God. Look at all that God has done. It could all be traced back to God's work. But the reality was Jewish believers, a party of the Pharisees, they make a case for human works instead of God's. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them. I love that. To order them to keep the law of Moses. The ritual aspects of the law were the provisions that marked Jews from other people. You know, circumcision, food laws, um, ritual purity. They were all what made the Jews Jews. And the Pharisees just couldn't let that go. It was so ingrained in them. So the church brings together this conference of people. And these Pharisees, they give assent to the gospel, but they add something to it. They say, you know what? You people erred by not adding circumcision. So they clearly conveyed that the gospel was not enough. Not enough. Listen, Jesus plus anything poisons the gospel. It poisons the gospel. I don't care what banner, what denomination, how sincere, how many Bible verses you think you have to support it, it's not a God, no matter how you twist it. 
You know, we can differ on politics. We can differ on secondary issues of theology. We can differ on who's going to win the Super Bowl. But we cannot differ on the terms of the gospel and expect that everything is just cool. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, see that? I don't care who the messenger is. I don't care how much you respect the person. I don't care how many books he wrote, how many degrees he has after himself. You add anything to the gospel, it poisons it. They preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be a curse. That's another way of saying God will deal with him. God will deal with him. And as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, again, if you didn't get this, let him be accursed. Say, where does he get off? Well, you know, I guess apostles can do that kind of thing. Galatians 1.7 says that God has called us by the grace of Christ and that there is no other standard sufficient enough to garner God's acceptance. However, he says that the Gentile, the Galatians are in danger of deserting Christ for a different gospel. So different, it's got two different Greek words. One is alos. It means different, but the same type. You know, I have a, a yellow apple and a red apple. They have some differences, but they're of the same type, okay? Still an apple. There's another Greek word, heteros. It means something that is not at all of the same kind. It's completely disassociated. Apples, rocks. That's the word that is used in verse 6. The gospel that involved legalism is not even in the same ballpark as the gospel of Christ. This is further pointed out in verse 7 when Paul says, this different gospel is really not another. (laughs) Because there's only one gospel. So what makes the situation so alarming to Paul is that some were leaving the grace of God for a fabricated version. And Galatians makes the point that when you poison the gospel, you know what that does? That robs people of their security and their joy and their peace. Verse 7 says, there are some who trouble you. That word for trouble is the same one used of Herod, who was upset at the birth of Christ. So upset, what does he do? He kills a bunch of babies. Wow. It means to cause deep emotional distress, to agitate, to shake up. Hmm. See, when the gospel is perverted, with legalistic standards, when they're added to the gospel, it creates an unsettling. It creates a disturbance in the hearts of Christians 
who buy into it. Where once they had assurance because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, now they are shaken by doubts due to the false teaching that Christ is not enough. The gospel is not enough. You know, there are extra signs that you need for salvation. There's, you know, these unbiblical prerequisites for salvation. And then once you get into the Christian life, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to follow these rules. Whether intentional or not, these kinds of thoughts express that Christ is not enough. Again, this has nothing to do with obedience to Christ, because when he's Lord, we obey him, but we obey him not to gain his love, not to gain salvation, because that is already taken care of in the gospel when we affirm the gospel. So every act of obedience is done out of worship and love and appreciation for what God has done in our lives. Titus 1, 10 and 11 says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Individuals are disturbed, whole families are infected, and the church is obstructed by this legalism. It comes in many forms. Legalism does. But at its essence, it's the belief that Christ is not enough for salvation and Christ is not enough for the Christian life. We need an extra experience. We need some other human effort, human doing to measure up, to be accepted by God, to be accepted into a church body. You know, one of the unfortunate observances I've made as a pastor now for 30 years is that some Christians can be the most sour people that I have ever met. Sour and unhappy. Why? Because they are so steeped in legalism. Paul would write, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why would you want to go into that when you have this freedom in Christ? You see, the method of justification determines your method of sanctification. If you walk by faith in your justification, you're going to walk by faith in your sanctification. Those are fancy words for how I got saved and how I walk in the Christian life. If you think you come to Christ on human effort, you'll live the Christian life in self-dependent human effort. Paul wrote in Colossians, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I've noticed in 17 years of teaching on the college campus that students are more stressed now than what they were when I first started. In fact, the American College Health Association confirms my anecdotal evidence by stating that 62% report overwhelming anxiety. Six out of 10 college students, overwhelming anxiety. For many of these young people, The single biggest stressor is that, and I quote, never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough, and now I can stop. One expert says, and again, I'm quoting, there is always one more activity, one more class, 
One more thing to do in order to make it. Kids have a sense that they're not measuring up. The pressure is relentless and getting worse. And that just described the Christian experience for many within the church. I can never do enough. I can never feel accepted. Life in Christ, at its core, is that Christ has done enough and that we can rest and that whatever I give to him out of my life is from an overflowing heart in appreciation that he has saved me and that I am secure and that he loves me unconditionally. There is nothing more that we have to do to experience the fact that we are valuable, we are loved, we are secure in Christ because all of that is given to us by Christ. We have to, by faith, believe the truth of what God has declared. Isn't it true that there are some people that just cannot accept love? You may see that in relationships. They cannot believe that their spouse really loves them. You can say it a million times. It just doesn't register. And they're Christians the same way. But it doesn't change the fact, and it's an objective fact, that God loves us unconditionally. Turn to the person next to you and say, God loves you unconditionally. Now we all, by faith, have to believe the truth of that. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All things, all times, in every good work, there's sufficiency given to me in Jesus Christ. You are lacking in nothing. Do you know that you have everything given to you in Jesus Christ to live the Christian life and to enjoy it? Everything. At the point that you came to Christ, because Christ and the Holy Spirit now indwell you. Now, can we, can we enjoy it more as we learn to Discipline ourselves before God, of course. As we read the word, we learn the truth. We, you know, we learn the crappy thinking that we had. We get rid of that. We replace it with truth. Yes, all those are things we can do. But those are just to align ourselves with what is already true, that we're secure, we're loved, we're valued. Nothing changes that fact. Let's pray.